0: Our text this morning is about Christian conversion. I hope you're looking at your copy of God's Word at 1 Peter 2.25. When I speak of the importance of Christian conversion, the only way one can enter the people of God and eternal life is through and by conversion. This text is profoundly dear to me because it's my autobiography. I left home and headed for California at the age of 17, the day after I graduated from high school, intending never to go back and never to have anything to do with the Lord Jesus Christ and the church. And 1 Peter 2.25 is my story. It's not just mine. It's the story of the Apostle Paul and John Newton and thousands, millions, billions of others. Now, when I use the word conversion, I don't want to suffer misunderstanding. Conversion begins with always supernatural acts of God conversion begins when God draws men to himself aren't we told in John 644 no one no one not one no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and then in the process of that effectual calling of that drawing we're told in scripture that God regenerates men gives them a new heart replacing their heart of stone And, of course, that's necessary that God would act sovereignly because if God didn't change men's hearts, no one would ever be converted. No one would have the least bit of interest in repenting and believing if God hadn't already given them a new heart. And so after God acts in drawing men to himself, in regenerating them, then men act because up until that point they've been dead in trespasses and sins. And they act in two distinct ways. Every conversion, it doesn't matter if it's China or Kenya or North Korea or Greenville, South Carolina, men who are converted always do the exact same two things. Always. You should stop at this point and say, do I know anything of what Carl talking about? They always repent and they always believe in Jesus Christ in his glorious person and work. Even their repentance and faith, even their actions, we are told in Scripture, are sovereignly given as a gift of God. So when men, if they want to claim any credit and say, well, I know God drew and God regenerated, but I repented and believed, Scripture says not so fast. Even that faith was given to you as a gift. Even that repentance was given to you as a gift. Christianity without conversion is no longer Christian, since conversion means turning to God. Conversion was what the apostles were aiming for. For example, in Acts chapter 15, and by the way, when we send out missions, I I delight in what Woodruff Road has has done in our missionary enterprise. We spend several hundred thousand dollars a year because of your generosity and your zeal and your faithfulness, but make no mistake, we are single-minded, When we send out and support missionaries, we are focusing very clearly on something. And that is the conversion of lost sinners. We're all for digging water wells. We're all for stopping human trafficking. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ and calling men to conversion. repentance and faith in Christ. And so we're told, for example, as an apostolic model, what were the apostles up to? We're told in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas passed through Phoenicia and Samaria describing the conversion of the Gentiles. And this caused great joy to all the brethren. That's my hope this morning is the exact same thing happens here. As we describe conversion, as we make it crystal clear that it gives you the same joy that those first century believers had when they heard of the conversion of sinners. Now today in our brief but powerfully focused text, you'll need to stare at verse 25 of 1 Peter 2, you're going to hear the apostle Peter speaking to converted men and describing for them their spiritual experience. Now some of you, you may need this today. You may think, I know something big happened. I know I was headed in this direction, and now I'm headed in this direction. I know now I hate my sin and I love Christ, but I really can't quite give words to it. Well, 1 Peter 2.25 ought to be of great interest to you, because this is the story of every converted person. Now, stare at that text for a moment. Peter reminds them of who they were, and this applies to you as well. Peter says, you were like sheep going astray. Now, this isn't unusual. This is common in the New Testament. The apostle Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians 6. He's in the middle of describing who will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. He says, don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetors, drunkards, revilers nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul says this, and such were some of you. And so the the apostles, Peter has no problem saying, this may be embarrassing, even humiliating to you, but this is who you were. Paul does the same thing. And then Peter, look at our text, clearly again in verse 25, Peter reminds these believers, because he's writing to the church. He reminds them of who they are now he says but you have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls Paul by the way does the exact same thing in first Corinthians 6 when he says you were washed you've been sanctified you've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the spirit of our God this morning we're going to place conversion under the microscope and I hope you'll look very carefully with me let's seek the Lord's help now our father we ask for illuminating grace We see so many powerful truths stored up here for us in your word. And we pray by your Holy Spirit that you would do business with our souls through the hearing of this word. Oh Lord, we know that our natural inclination will be to dismiss and ignore those things we don't want to hear. And we confess that we've erected amazingly complex defense mechanisms against the word. But oh Lord, break through our barriers now knock down our barricades, take hold of our hearts, and transform us, even giving us the precious gift of Holy Spirit-sent repentance. Work mightily in our midst now, we pray, through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Now to understand what Peter is describing as you're looking there at verse 25, when Peter says, you were like sheep going astray, we need to go to principal text of the Bible, that describe our proneness to wander. Now, I will tell you, here's how the discussion has gone, I don't know, a thousand times in my ministry over the last 35 years, where I'll be speaking to someone who's unconverted, and I, I'll typically say, well, do you, do you see yourself as a sinner? Oh, oh, sure, I'm a sinner. Everybody is. What kind of sinner are you? You've just gotten too specific. If I say, are you the lying sort or the hating sort? Are you the Sabbath-breaking sort or the coveting sort? No, I'm I'm not any of those. These are not people who view themselves as strayers, specifically. And so let me ask you, can you answer the first question? Do you view yourself as a sinner? Oh, sure, Carl, everybody makes mistakes, you know. Sometimes I don't add things up right on my taxes. Or are you a specific, law-breaking, straying person? wicked, Christ-hating man. Look at our text. This describes every person before conversion. You were like sheep going astray. Now, if you're going to understand this, there's, we can do no better than to look at maybe the best picture of straying in the Bible. Keep one finger here and look at Luke 15. <clears throat> Let me show you a picture of straying. It certainly describes my life. Luke 15, you know it as the parable of the prodigal son. We'll read the first part of that parable. Luke 15, beginning in verse 11. A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood, and not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, wasted his possessions with prodigal living. He spent all. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. Normally, Jewish sons would stay in the father's business and serve under him, waiting until he died before inheriting their share of the family assets. But this son can't wait. He's been eyeing the world outside his father's house, and his heart is drawn by its allure. And so with incredible arrogance and stupidity, he comes to his father and says, Give me my portion. The father responds to the son's unreasonable request with unimaginable generosity. Now he's the younger son, so the older son would get a double portion, he would get two-thirds of the inheritance. This meant that the younger son, who we'll call the prodigal, was given a third of all the property and the livestock and the servants and all the wealth. And when we read in Luke 15 verse 13 that he gathered all together, it could more carefully be translated, he liquidated all the assets. So this would mean the son sold off the father's property and livestock and servants. The accumulated economic gains of multiple generations are quickly liquidated by the prodigal at fire sale prices. And know how he chafed to get out of there. He longed for a life away from all authority and accountability. He wanted to be able to get up when he wanted to, Go where he wanted, return when he pleased. Life in the Father's house was claustrophobic for him. He wanted to be as far away from the watchful eye of the Father as he could go. He's in full-scale revolt. He wants nothing more of the Father's values and laws. He's totally rejecting the Father's life. Total disrespect, total dishonor. There are all kinds of recorded instances in Jewish literature of sons who actually did this and they received a slap across the face, which was the method of rebuking such impudence. By saying, Dad, I want my inheritance now, he's saying, I've been waiting around for you to die, and since you won't hurry up and die, I want it now. <clears throat> the son was clearly communicating. I don't want a relationship with you. I'm saying no to the family and the community and your way of life. You're a barrier to my freedom. I want out now. And by the way, I want you to bankroll it. This is a technicolor picture of something that happens every day. Covenant children raised in the Lord's house by believing parents who say, I want the world. They leave the people of God to make their lot with Christ-rejecting unbelievers. And the prodigal goes as fast and as far as he can. And he goes straight to Gentile, pagan lands in the far country where no one knows his father, no one restrains him, no one restricts him. He answers to no one and he looks out the window of his new penthouse apartment and he says, life is sweet here. I always knew it was better out here. And he has freedom. Freedom to sin in any way he wants. Look at Luke 15, verse 13. This is describing what straying looks like. When the text says he wasted his possessions with prodigal living, the word prodigal means unrestrained, extravagant. He's got a wallet full of dad's money, so he has no problem making new friends and gathering a posse, and entourage. He's the life of the party, buying drinks for everyone. Women that never seemed to do so before now, now that he's buying, find him devastatingly handsome. Everyone laughs at his witty stories and his clever jokes and he thinks, I love this place. No one ever thought I was clever back home, but they were just dullards. These people get it. He gratifies every lust, deprives himself of nothing. In verse 30 of Luke 15, we find that a lot of his money went to pay for prostitutes. His father's legacy was supposed to set him up for life, but soon he looks at his bank statement, and he notices it's looking lean. And as he tries to remember where it all went and what he has to show for it, he remembers most of it was spent in an alcohol-induced haze. He realized that he's practically given all of his inheritance away, a life thrown away, nothing to show for it except a few diseases. And in these brief, simple words in Luke 15, verse 13 and 14, we have a portrait of you and I, by nature. We are always proud and self-willed and fleeing from fellowship with the Father, wasting our time and our strength and our affections on foolish and unprofitable pursuits. But oh, for the prodigal, things quickly change. Two factors coincide to plunge him into deep distress. He spent everything, And then a severe famine arose and people got desperate. He has no savings and no resources. And he's still nowhere near ready to go home. He planned on spending a lot of money, but he never planned on running out of money. Well, he'd come here in search of real community and, of course, lost, stray, or say things like that. I'm going to leave the church and go find real community. And all those friends that were willing to sit up late and drink and talk about deep philosophical things as long as he was buying his community. He would, he would go to them. They would help him out. Turns out none of his former friends who were glad to help him spend his money now had any willingness to help him because he's a foreigner. He's rootless. He's a vagabond, a stranger from a strange land. And so he does what had seemed so distasteful just a few months before he humbles himself and seeks a job. But he has no connections. And his resume is full of holes, and he can only find one job. pig pen attendant. So now he loses his identity. He's become like a Gentile. Tending pigs. Working on the Sabbath. And to make things even worse, he's so now desperately hungry because he's broke. He's so hungry that the slop he's pitching out is starting to look good. He envies the hogs. He's hit bottom. He's on skid row. He groans and no one cares. He's broke, dirty, and lonely. And rather than enjoying the dignity and the abundance of the father's house, he's degraded into poverty in a pigsty. His parties become a prison. He came here for freedom, and he's now a slave. He'd planned on lust and drunkenness without interruption or consequences, but what he's gotten is loneliness and emptiness. Sin is a hard master. And the servants of sin find it out, some sooner, some later. But the writer of Proverbs is always right when he says in Proverbs 13, the way of the transgressor is hard when Jesus tells this story, the story of the prodigal, to describe what straying looks like, he's actually building on an old expression. Look at a second text that describes what it looks like to stray. Look at Isaiah 53. This would have been so familiar to every Israelite. In Isaiah 53, 6, Isaiah writes prophetically hundreds of years before the incarnation of Christ. Isaiah 53, 6, Isaiah writes, all, that would include you and me, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, here comes again, the numerical affirmation, every one, every single one to his own way. Why this figure of speech? Why is it New Testament and Old Testament alike, this picture drilled into our heads of straying? Well, in this case, in Isaiah 53, 6, it's to show our brutishness that we can be compared to foolish animals. You realize this is not a flattering statement when Isaiah says, oh, we, oh by the way, like sheep. doesn't compare us to eagles or mad, majestic horses. Like dumb, stupid, smelly sheep. Why this figure of speech? Also to show our proneness to wander. Remember how Jeremiah stated in Jeremiah 14, they have loved to wander, they've not restrained their feet. And this also shows us by picking out the figure of speech of a sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray. This shows our inability to return. Unlike dogs, and of course you know the stories, I love these stories of of dogs who, who get lost on vacation 400 miles away and they find their way home. Or or birds, or even, I hate to say it and admit it, cats. You know that cats are a product of the fall, right? <clears throat> Any questions and objections, send me an email at dan at But no stories like that exist about sheep, of sheep getting lost and finding their way back home from hundreds of miles away. That's because sheep will keep going. They will keep straying and wandering until someone turns them. But this also, why this figure of speech, all we like sheep have gone astray? To show the great danger we're in. Helpless sheep are easy prey for all manner of predators. What's expressed by this idea of going astray? universal depravity, that we have all stepped over the line and broken God's clear and holy law. Every sin is a departing from God. Every sin. Isn't this the consistent thread throughout the Holy Scripture? We're told in Genesis 6, this is speaking of your ancestors and mine, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's our legacy. That's why Paul, when he's making his case in Romans 3, to conclude every man under sin and needing conversion. Paul says in Romans 3, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands, none who seeks after God. All have turned aside. They've all together become unprofitable. G.K. Chesterton said, The one doctrine of Christianity that is empirically provable to everyone's satisfaction is this, universal depravity and guilt. But look back at 1 Peter 2. There's hope. Because if all I did this morning was tell you, You are a sinner. You'd say, agreed. But look at the second half. When Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.25, he says, You were like sheep going astray. You were like prodigals wandering into the far country. But then Peter, writing to converted men, says, But have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Go back to the the parable of prodigal. I want you to see his return because his return is, is actually a textbook return. I want you to look at it and say, do I know anything of this type of return, of how the prodigal returned, how he was converted? Because I'm going to plead with you today to ask, do you know anything of conversion? Do you know anything of turning? certainly know a lot about wandering and straying. I could write a textbook on it. Do you know anything of returning? Look at Luke 15. We read beginning in verse 15 or verse 17 of the prodigal. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Now notice very carefully what the return looks like. Look up to verse 17. First of all, the prodigal comes to his senses. He looks around and says, what have I become? I've hit bottom. I've not broken God's laws. They've broken me. And then the thoughts of his father's house come flooding over him. My father has servants, and he treats them well. My master here doesn't even care if I starve. The tears begin to flow. And he remembers again his father. My father was kind and generous, never harsh. He was not a hard man. What was I thinking, leaving such a great place and a marvelous father? And I love that language in Luke 15, 17, because here is the essence of conversion. Look carefully. He came to himself. What scripture is saying is, the lost man is not in his right mind. The fall has corrupted his discernment and judgment. Sin will make you stupid. Sin will make you crazy. Of course, all of this awakening is of God's grace. This is the Holy Spirit. When he comes to a census, this is the Holy Spirit giving light to the mind and sweeping away the darkness. When the Holy Spirit sovereignly and graciously does awaken a man, that man has a clear assessment of his bankrupt condition. He stops rationalizing and blame-shifting. And notice as well, when the Holy Spirit graciously awakens a man, he starts thinking about others. He thinks about his Father and the servants and all others. And now by God's grace, he's beginning to personify the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount. He's poor in spirit. He's mourning over sin. He has desperate spiritual hunger. And so in a monologue with his own soul, look at it there in Luke 15, the second half of the the parable, he hatches a four-point plan. Look at his plan point 1 get up and go home point 2 i'm going to humble myself and confess my sin to dad no excuses no blaming him and his poor parenting i'll tell the truth and i'll call my thoughts and actions sin by the way that's a vital part of conversion is naming your life and your actions as wickedness point 3 of his point 4 plan I'll tell Dad, Dad, you no longer need to call me son. See, the prodigal gets it. He understands that no one owes him anything. By his sin, he's forfeited all his rights. And in his fourth point, I'm going to plead with Dad to hire me back on his servant staff. I'll be glad to be a a hireling, a wage earner for Dad, and live out on the fringes of Dad's estate. Dad, I'll live down in the woods you won't even see and know that I'm here. And by the way, Dad, I'll seek to pay you back all that I squandered this isn't just thoughts or talk. Look at verse 20 in Luke 15. He takes action. You see, real faith acts. He moves his feet in the direction of his convictions because real repentance always, always breaks off from sin. The repenter seeks to make a clean break with his lifestyle. He realizes that feelings and tears and wishes are useless unless they're accompanied by action and change. And what makes the prodigal's confession and repentance so profound is the full embracing of both the guilt of his sin and the consequences of his sin. Jesus doesn't rejoice in sinners. It's not sin he loves, nor sinners as sinners. What he rejoices in is the repentance of sinners from their sin. And the deeper their sin, the greater heaven's repentance, or the greater heaven's joy. Notice he doesn't say to dad, Well, I was wrong for blowing up and leaving, but you were wrong for being so tight. If you'd just given me some space, I wouldn't have rebelled. No, the returning prodigal takes all the guilt and the blame and blames no one else. He's not asking for justice, only mercy. He's ready to do penance. He's ready to stay in the servants' quarters. He's ready to pay. And only after all the lost money is restored would he even think about or dare suggest reconciliation. But what he received was outside his wildest imagination. Look at the father's welcome of him. First, there's the watching. How could the father have seen him a long way off if he'd not been expectantly watching? What the son will find out is that even when the father in the father's house was the furthest thing from his mind, the wayward son was never off the father's mind. The father could recognize any feature of his son, even from afar off. Every characteristic of his son had been so carefully remembered that when he saw the dim outline on the horizon and that familiar stride, he leaped and sprinted as quickly as an old man could. And as the father approached this wayward son, running. He could see the filth and the downtrodden look. Perhaps he could even smell that unmistakable pigpen scent. But that didn't slow him down. Slow may be the steps of repentance, but swift are the feet of forgiveness. And we're given a clear insight into the father's behavior. Look at Luke 15, verse 20. He had compassion on him. In other words, the father was ready to receive him. And then look at the affections shown in verse 20. The father fell on his neck and kissed him. The welcome is not lukewarm, not in the least. The son doesn't have to wonder for a moment if he's welcome. And then there's the cutoff. Look at verse 21 and 22. The father will not even let the son finish his prepared statement. The father turns to the servants and begins giving orders. Orders for a party. Doesn't this show that God isn't just willing to receive sinners? Not just willing, grudgingly to receive sinners. But he's eager to receive repenting sinners. I need to say that ten times. The Father is eager to receive repenting sinners. Now each of the things the Father orders, look at verse 22 and 23. For the son have immense significance and and demonstrate honor. First there's the robe. The son was to remove his filthy rags and don a gorgeous expensive robe. This was a mark of extreme honor. When a king wanted to show respect for a visiting dignitary, he would present him with a beautiful costly robe. So the father's command to his servants is, treat this son of mine as the guest of honor in my house. And then a ring is brought out, a signet ring. In that culture, a signet ring was given from a king to his prime minister, signifying transfer of authority. And so both of these, the robe and the ring, were ways of saying, Son, everything I have is yours. Then there were the sandals. Shoes were a luxury. Slaves and commoners went barefoot, but not sons. And then there was the fatted calf. In that that culture, meat was rarely eaten, especially veal. This will save for special occasions, usually just a wedding. And this welcome teaches us the extravagant, excessive, crazy, head-over-heels love God has for repenting sinners. Just one repenting sinner comes home and the party is on. You see, whenever a sinner repents and comes to the Father's house, this merriment, joy, celebration is always the appropriate response. A fatted calf, according to the literature of the time, could feed 200 people. So lots of people would be invited over to celebrate with this father that his son, the straying one, has come home. And what this prodigal parable tells us is conversion. Conversion is always reason for celebration. How do we apply this? Look back at First Peter 2, verse 25, and put your name in here. Peter's writing to believers, and he says, You were like sheep going astray. Yes, wanders. But to believers, he says, You have now returned. Let want to make several applications to us. The first is, Peter is telling you that it's possible to come home to the Father's house. Repent and turn. God will receive you and not reject you. By the way, wasn't that the charge that was so frequently made against Jesus that Peter heard in his ears as he was close by Jesus over and over again that he received sinners, that he's the friend of sinners? Well, why do you think sinners sought him out? He had a message of hope for them. He was saying to them, you're the lost coin, lost sheep, lost son I'm searching for. If you'll come home to the Father's house, you will be received. Jesus was saying, this is why I came to earth. While be humiliated, mocked, and killed so I can receive sinners. I want to speak for just a moment today to covenant children who've gone into the far country. If you've blown it, the Father receives repenting and returning sinners. But that's what conversion is. Conversion is not just straying. Oh, we have that down pat. It's straying and returning. That's what conversion is. I would call you to that today. But I would tell you as well, too, the news is so good. We saw it in Luke 15 when the father receives returning, repenting sinners. The past is wiped out. I'm always stunned. I'm sure I've read Luke 15 a thousand times. But I'm always stunned that the father treats the prodigal son as if he'd been exemplary in all his conduct. How quickly the Father commands his servants to strip off every vestige of his evil past. There are some of you here this morning that struggle mightily with a lifestyle or an action from 10 or 20 or 30 or even 40 years ago. There are women in this room who are convinced that that abortion you had 30 years ago is being held over your head even though you've repented in bitter tears. But do you understand When you stray and return, your sins are wiped clean by the blood of Jesus. I would say as well, this teaches us. When Peter writes what conversion is, going astray and returning, what the prodigal son teaches us is the gospel is better than you can ever dream. The prodigal son would have been content to come to the father's house and just be a slave and work. But the Father had something better for him. Just so the gospel gives more than we can even imagine. If we will but return. Let's pray. Oh, Father, full of grace, give us ears to hear this word. We ask that you would enable prodigals to come home today and give your people great joy when they see sinners repenting. We pray in the name of Jesus.